Welcome to Podcastica Patristica. We're your hosts. I am Tyler Stanley. And I'm Gerhard Steven. Today we're going to have kind of a free flow and conversation slash battle royale over the correct church model of authority. Tyler's going to get the mech. I'm going to get uh, some minis and a shotgun. It'll be fun. I don't know what that means. We're going to have a battle royale. It's a Fortnite thing. Oh. Well, uh, we are going to have a discussion over kind of our... The traditions in which we currently find ourselves and kind of... I'm, I guess I should say I'm a Baptist, pretty committed to it. I think it's uh, a good model that could use some improvement and we'll talk about that a little bit today. And Gerhard? Uh, yeah, I sort of grew up Baptist, um, started going to a Baptist church in high school and I went to a Baptist college, Baptist seminary, and uh, long history being Baptist, but over the last four years, um, maybe three or four years, I started, uh, stopped being a Baptist in heart, but was still one um, in maybe more like three years, uh, was still one in affiliation. But I recently left my Baptist church and joined an Anglican church, which is more in uh, the sympathy with the theology of my wife and I. So new convert from being Baptist, if you count affiliation, uh, less new convert, if you just mean in opinion. (laughs) Well, before we get started, we have a drink recommendation. It is currently 10.30 as we're recording this, 10.30 in the morning, so we're not, we're drinking coffee, actually. But if you're going to be thinking through... I don't see the problem there, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. I just don't feel like drinking that. Yeah, I mean, it's fine. Also, I only have a couple beers in the Mm -hmm. fridge, and I need them for later. Anyway, uh, we would recommend Sam Adams Boston Lager, because we're, we're Protestants, and... Uh, New England, Boston area, is the cradle of of Protestantism in the U.S. Kind of when the when the U.S. was was getting its uh, getting its start up in New England, Protestantism was really flourishing in that area. And as we all know, the capital of Massachusetts, which is Providence, Rhode Island, is where uh, our good old Baptist uh, founder Roger Williams got his his start. Maybe like so, a war turtle era. Yeah. yeah, he was, you could call him like the water turtle of of New England. Yeah. Like a squirt turtle. Yeah, well, maybe he's like a war turtle, right? Because the Anabaptists are the originals, and then you get the early Baptists, and mm. you have like, I don't know, who's the Blastoise? Or is it the other way around? We are Squirtle. That's all I know. So we are Squirtle. Well, not, well, not me. I, yeah, you are Squirtle. We Baptists are the true, the true uh, and baptized. I think I saw that like Spurgeon is the Blastoise or something. I don't know. Yeah. I I honestly have very little care to read Spurgeon. I know that's a very unBaptist thing to say, but I'm not interested in him. Yeah, he's. Probably because, like, all the very fundamentalist, like, background that I have, all those preacher boys were hardcore into Spurgeon. Yeah. And when I got out of that, I was like, I just don't care about this guy. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's basically how I feel, too. <laughs> also, his uh, Arminians are literally heretics and should be ex- excommunicated. Yeah. 
That was, that and was Gerhard's cool. a Calvinist saying that. Yeah. Deal with it. Deal with it, Calvinists. So yeah, that's the that's the drink pairing today. Wait, so if we're a Squirtle, what what are, what are Anglicans? Uh, Bulbasaur. Bulbasaur. Yeah, we just we decided that on the Twitter thread yesterday. Why are you Bulbasaur? Okay, so um, Charmander is Pentecostal for obvious, obvious. reasons. Receive the fire. Uh, Squirtle baptism. Uh, a Bulbasaur is a a leaf type Pokemon. So the Bulbasaur was the seed planted of a new church in the Protestant Reformation. Right, it's a seed of something new that came out of the old, but then you get an ivysaur, which is something with, that has roots down but pulls <laughs> upwards, and so this is the growth of the magisterial reformation and the hierarchical and more uh, mainline Protestant churches. And then by the time you get to a venusaur, you have something that's <laughs> has roots in the old but is so distinct that it's become a new thing, and this is the growth of the mm. uh, the Anglican Church. If you have no idea what's going on, that only means that you have a life. And you're not Twitter poisoned. And you're not poisoned by Twitter. If you're extremely online, then you would know that on Twitter, uh, weird Anglican Twitter was a thing where all of the Anglicans on Twitter started talking about their weird traditions. And then we Baptists, like always, thought, we have to reach the youths. We gotta do what the cool people are doing. So we created Weird Baptist Twitter. And somehow the mascot of that is Squirtle. No, it's because uh, Caleb Stallings kept on replying to everything with Squirtle uh, gifts, And it was really funny and I thought it was hilarious. And this is analogous to how tradition develops from the early church, from the New <laughs> Testament into the early church, the pre-Nicene era, and following. All right, let's stop bullshitting. Let's let's get to it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, um, how do you wanna how do you wanna break this? Maybe off? maybe we can start off by talking about kind of the formation of the episcopacy, the development of it from New Testament through the next few centuries, because a lot of what we're talking about is going to be actually like the office of the pastor, elder, priest, bishop, kind of thing, and and whether and to what extent that's legitimized by scripture and tradition, and how, for us as a Baptist and an Anglican, like how our traditions connect to that heritage or disconnect from that heritage, and why that may be a good or bad thing. So, it's a good thing. <laughs> so, let's look at uh, a big source that we're using here is... Uh, it's a book called The Church, A Guide for the Perplexed, and it is written by Matt Jensen and a scholar that we have mentioned often. He was our own patristics professor, uh, David Wilhite. And uh, in that book, they sort of outline uh, briefly the phases of the development of the episcopacy. So do you want to take it? from there yeah um so what we have in <clears throat> sort of the new testament era like always is up for grabs and um, it's up for debate but we do seem to find some um some agreement about the development of the church moving from the new testament on um so the key question is um what the uh, what the words in the new testament uh 
grow to mean as time continues. Um, so there's debate of what they originally meant um, and how the church was originally structured, but the words grew to mean something different, and they specifically grew to become really offices, really um, really designations of individual people. Um, and the words you're speaking of referring to specifically... Yeah, so there's elder on the one hand and bishop on the other. Um, the Greek words are presbyteros and episkopos, um, and that I think is actually really it's important to understand that um, understand that some of these words have multiple meanings uh, or multiple translations uh, because the word pres- presbyter um, becomes the English word priest. Um, and so, and episkopos, if you would translate it into more colloquial English, would mean uh, overseer. And so on the one hand, you've got elders, priests. On the other hand, you've got bishops, overseers. That someone can mean would mean something completely different if today they said the elder in my church versus the priest of my church, and um, so we have to keep in mind that these are, uh, this is one word that's going to grow um, as time goes on. Now, at each point, uh, you have to ask what does the word mean at this particular time, and a good example of that is the difference between uh, two early Christian writers in the Apostolic Fathers collection. Uh, on the one hand, you've got uh, the author Clement, um, who wrote a letter to the church at Rome. Um, this is the first letter of Clement, and he uh, uses the words um, presbyter and uh, episkopos, uh, priest and bishop, differently than does another writer, whose name is Ignatius, who you've maybe heard of. Um, so for Clement... It's not entirely clear that the presbyter and the episkopos, the priest and the bishop, are different people. Um, they could be referring to the same office, just in its different valences. Um, just like a modern uh, free church person might say, my pastor or my minister, um, and basically mean the same person. The reverend, they all basically refer to the same title in uh, southern free church talk. It could be the same thing in Clement, where uh, priest and bishop, uh, presbyter and episcopos, basically mean the same thing. Now, that is very much not the case in Ignatius. Ignatius, another uh, early 2nd century writer, has a very clear distinction between the, um, the different offices of the church and the hierarchical levels of the church. On the bottom are the lay people. Above them are the priests. Um, well, actually, there's the lay people, the deacons, then the priests, and then the bishop. And this is a more familiar structure for people in uh, mainline and Catholic and whatnot churches. Um, it's basically what you expect. The bishop makes decisions. Everyone else basically is expected to uh, obey them. Um, be, uh, be persuaded to them is the phrase that Hebrews uses. Um same with the priests. Um, if the deacons try to go against the priest, unless the priest is teaching some heresy or doing something immoral, um, then the, the deacons are out of line. And so everyone in this order submits to the person above them. At the top, you have the bishops who are um, real authorities um, in the strict sense of that word. And so around the same time, uh, these are 
people writing about the same time, Ignatian's maybe slightly later. Um, around the same time, you have these two different church offices, uh, these two different understandings of the church offices sort of uh, existing side by side. And that I think is an interesting uh, an interesting development is that it's not entirely clear to the early Christians how they should do church um, because there are different interpretations of the apostolic um, inheritance. And that I think says something important about that apostolic inheritance, that it's not entirely clear. Yeah. It's, an, it's also important to note that Ignatius is often used to support a more kind of stringent hierarchy within the church so that we'd say, you know, you have to have a bishop over your uh, priests, over your deacons, over your lay people. Um, But it seems pretty consistent. um, I wouldn't say consensus, but um, generally speaking, Ignatius is seen as an outlier. There is no precedent set for this kind of threefold structure of bishop, then priest, then deacon. Prior to Ignatius, no one is really, no one has a clear development of those three offices. And even during Ignatius's time and shortly after, you still have what appears to be a twofold office of, uh, of priests slash bishops and then deacons under them, and then the lay people. So Ignatius is often kind of, I wouldn't say ignored, but kind of seen as an anomaly and not characteristic of the era or really of the development of of the of hierarchy. And one thing that's maybe important here is to remember, like, there is the materials are really sparse. Yeah. Um, even in some books that are really important, like the Didache, um, like, some of it just doesn't survive. Like... This is an era in which um, it's not necessary. You can't necessarily make an argument from silence um, on these sort of issues because it's not one of the main talking points of early Christians. Uh, They didn't argue about this constantly. Um, And there is is a sparsity of data. Um, And so it is the case uh, that there is... Uh, confusion and that their Ignatius does not represent the whole early church, but it's also the case that Ignatius isn't necessarily uh, out on his own because other texts may just not survive. And this is not something that the apostolic fathers spend a lot of time talking about. Yeah. And I, I suspect a lot of this kind of different ecclesiologies existing in the same period. I suspect a lot of that, this is, purely speculation on my part but i suspect it has to do with regional differences Mm um you know kind of each culture and region is going to have its own social structures and social customs and everything and so i i i think you know for instance in the the new testament period there's a debate among new testament scholars on whether the earliest churches looked more like synagogues or whether they looked more like um like house churches that looked more like a a local citizen assembly because that word ecclesia is most often used to my understanding in political context thinking of a group of citizens who come together to like vote on things Mm -hmm. which is why people in my tradition baptists are very much 
usually in line with that school of thought that the church looks like a group of people coming together to make decisions and maybe um, just for podcast people like what's uh, so that's what an ecclesia like the am- ramifications that would what would be if the early church looked more like a synagogue if it looked more like a synagogue then you would think of the of the priests more in line with old testament priests they would have specific functions they would be uh maybe like ontologically different because of their calling from the rest of society so you would have a group of people set apart to do the specific like cultic practices of the church like administer the sacraments do the baptisms um uh, they would have spiritual authority over the community um in a way that like normal lay people don't have different they have different responsibilities um and so i it would it would make complete sense to me if this isn't an either or debate that in the you know palestinian communities where the church initially um was born those may have looked more like a synagogue and then once you get more into the greco-roman cities it may have looked different like these house church models um which gets back to Gerhard's point earlier that that these words are fuzzy, that there's no clear description on what the church exactly looks like in its polity and structure. We're really left to speculate and pull out what we think it looked like then and then and and then which is what we're doing right now, think about the development of our tradition and ask, is this justified? Um, and I think as Protestants, Gerhard and I are both committed to the idea of sola scriptura, which for me, I think, and maybe for Gerhard too, in this context, I think that means tradition isn't self-validating, um, that, uh, just because the church, broadly speaking, has decided to do something, uh, doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit told them to do that. It has to be justified and validated by scripture. And uh, so that's kind of what we're trying to do now is ask those yeah. questions. Ask what did it look like and do our modern systems look, can they be validated? I, so. I think I would add to that. I agree um, about like the definition of sola scriptura and it's tradition isn't self-validating. I think that's exactly right. And um, I would add maybe to the does it is it justified by scripture with um like is it is it plausible that this tradition goes back to the uh teaching of the apostles um so if we can find it in scripture it for sure does of course um but it is also theoretically possible that the apostles said something that wasn't written down in the letters they happened to write and that survive and then I think that would also carry moral weight. And Tyler agrees. You still agree? Do you agree with that? Or mm, I think that would be such a difficult thing to nail down. Right. That that's kind of like what do the original manuscripts say? That mm-hmm. it's like it doesn't matter. We don't have them. I don't See, know. I also disagree on that because really? uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I think it was who's the DTS uh, text critic in Greek. He wrote the Greek Grammar Beyond the Basics book, Dan something. 
Daniel uh, yeah. Wallace. Wallace, yeah. Yeah, well, I was I heard Wallace lecture one time, and he made an interesting point that uh, we do have the original manuscripts. Uh, they're in, somewhere in the textual text critical footnotes, and we don't, but we just don't know which is the original. Oh, yeah. Um, so yeah, um, <clears throat> that's a bit aside the point. Um, yeah, I think that if the tradition can plausibly be linked like we have to do historical work here which is unstable and it's not necessarily convincing without a doubt but we still have to do our best to try at it yeah um if it can be linked to a probable teaching of the apostles then it's legitimate and and even apart from that what we do have in scripture while we may not have explicit descriptions of what the church has to look like in its structure we do have like what the church's goal is we do have what the church's doctrine is and so if our um structure impinges upon that we have to get rid of it if it if it uh, advances that then development is fine like it's fine to do things in the assembly that scripture doesn't tell us to do and if it advances like our goals of, you know, living the kingdom of God on earth, then by all means. And we do find principles and like hints of an ecclesiology in the New Testament. Yeah. And, and I think those, it's, we, we would do good, we would do well to try to model our churches on those hints and principles. Yeah. So maybe, uh, so if that's like the second century with the confusion of um, the terms uh, in Ignatius and Clement, Moving on a bit, um, Tyler, correct me if I'm wrong here. I think that as we go on, it becomes basically the Ignatian model takes hold pretty early, as early as Irenaeus you mentioned. Um, do you have anything to say um, about that? Yeah, so Cyprian talks a lot about the church structure in his letters especially. Um, and what we see in Cyprian is... Uh, something like this Ignatian model and what Cyprian one thing that he's uh, that's noteworthy from him is his understanding of the autonomy of the local church and for him the local church is the city so there would be house churches all over the city uh, possibly you know by this point there are probably buildings built for worship and everything in his city but he, as the bishop over, um, uh, he's Carthage, right? Sounds right. I think he's Carthage. Uh, he, as bishop over Carthage, uh, has authority over Carthage. No one else has authority over Carthage. There isn't a metropolitan bishop that, that controls. Rome is not an authority over this part of the world. Um, and that's important. Because the next step, we do get metropolitan bishops which would be areas like um, uh, Athens, Jerusalem, Rome. Athens and Jerusalem. Athens and Jerusalem. Oh, God. Uh, Rome and... Constantinople. Constantinople. Well, I was wondering if it was... What the North African one was. Uh, It's Egypt, isn't it? Like the... uh, Alexandria. Patriarch of... uh, Alexandria. Alexandria. Yeah. Yeah. So these metropolitan bishops were kind of, because these were such massive cultural centers, uh, they were metropolises, which is why they're called metropolitan bishops. Uh, 
they, you know, probably for practical reasons, developed a larger hierarchy to kind of keep order over, you know, these massive, this massive population that's growing of Christians in the area. Um, but these metropolitan bishops did not have authority over one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, it was uh, the Alexandrian bishop that was first called Pope. Mm-hmm. Um, so even the development of the papacy isn't around for uh, for several centuries mm-hmm. after the, the New Testament era. Um I mean that whether that legitimizes the... whether that legitimizes the papacy right. or metropolitan bishops or not, um, it's important to understand that this is a development. Mm-hmm. And uh so our question is, are these developments justified? And so by Nicaea, what you get is a lot of uh practical reflection on how these Uh, hierarchies and geographical divisions work and should work and how they can best serve the church's functions. If you're not a modern Western progressive, uh, you think that excommunication is one of the functions of the church. And so one of the problems they dealt with at Nicaea is how to make excommunication stick, because you could have this problem just like in modern churches. um, If you're excommunicated by First Baptist uh, Waco, you can go to Second Baptist Waco and they'll take you in. So there's these things called the canons of Nicaea at a church council. They're coming together to make rules for the church in their area, essentially. And these are the canons, the rules for the churches in our area. Uh, Canon 5 is the one that talks about how to deal with excommunication. And they decide that if you are excommunicated in Alexandria, you can't just move to Jerusalem and expect to be uh, welcomed into the church. The... In that instance, if uh, the church at Alexandria learns that you moved to Jerusalem, uh, then they should you know, let the Jerusalem church know. And then your excommunication in Alexandria should also stick in Jerusalem. And you can only be restored by the, the priest, bishop, the hierarchy that um, excommunicated you. And this was in order to prevent people uh, just subverting church discipline and to keep the processes of excommunication in um in practical power mm-hmm. and that's something that frankly with the breakdown of the unity of the church has just completely gone out the window and why we don't do excommunication anymore yeah bring back excommunication see you said that you know western progressivism doesn't have excommunication but what they do have is cancel culture that's true you can get canceled you by get your local church. Canceled. Yeah. Which to be fair, like modern uh evangelical churches almost never have excommunication either. Yeah, they don't. I think I know of one story of a church I worked at excommunicating someone, but it was like they wouldn't do it for a sin, they would do it for hurting someone else in the congregation. Hmm. Basically, um someone had an affair and their wife was still going to the church. And um uh, the church wasn't going to let the husband while he was having the affair because that would be hurtful to the wife. Hmm. But it wasn't about you sinned and haven't repented, um, which is what early Christian excommunication was and yeah. should still be today. That's interesting. I mean, there there are attempts by some groups to bring back some form of excommunication, and it's often done in very unhealthy ways, like, like for instance, uh, Mark Driscoll's Mars Hill. Like, his 
um, kind of fall from grace was because of, well, partly because of how they would try to do something similar to like an Anabaptist ban, um, where you like shun the, the person living in sin. Um, but it was always like really petty stuff that wasn't clearly sin. And it was, uh, like, like verbally abusive and, um, having everyone treat them very poorly after they were kicked out of the church. So rather than excommunicating for the purpose of bringing them back in, it was kind of like, we're going to humiliate you kind of thing. Right. So there are attempts to do church discipline today and it often is more, does more harm than good. Yeah. But now we have essentially no order or structure whatsoever. So that's awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's what's happening in Nicaea. And that's maybe the end point for our, like, our mapping of the historical development. So just maybe to recap, confusion in the New Testament, and we'll talk about that in a second. Moving into the early second century, the big voices or the big representative examples are Clement and Ignatius. And there's a difference between, uh, is this essentially autonomous churches or is it um churches under a bishop hmm. um is it is a local church priest the same thing as a look as a bishop or is there a bishop above all the local church yeah. priests and moving on from there ignatius's model wins moves into cyprian by the time you get to nicaea you have metropolitans um who are over the bishops but still a metropolitan is not over another metropolitan. There is no papacy yet in the strict sense of the word. Okay, so 2,000 years later, <laughs> we get, or 1,500 years later, we get uh, Reformation happening, uh, people split off from uh, the, the Catholic Church in Europe. We still have the Eastern Church doing its thing, which I think is uh pretty close to like cyprian's model the metropolitan model which actually if you're interested uh metropolitan bishop callistos ware talks a lot about um church hierarchy coming from the orthodox perspective and he actually thinks that local churches need more autonomy he thinks that the hierarchy has become too uh too authoritative in the matters of the local church. So he actually argues that the early church was more autonomous than, than we often give it credit Let's for. Let's define local church there. He means bishops, right? He doesn't mean uh, individual congregations. I didn't read a ton of him, so I, I'm... And I'm not super familiar with the structures of orthodox ecclesiology. But yeah, I think he would be saying something closer to Cyprian's model where a local city bishop would have more autonomy from, like, the metropolitan. Right, yeah. Yeah. I think. Okay, yeah. But. I haven't read it, so yeah. I'm just trusting you. So, okay, so let me talk a little bit about the squirtles. Baptists come along. The, the Baptist goal is to be as much like the New Testament church as possible. Um, obviously, 
There is a heavy reactionary element to the reason Baptists develop. They're reacting not only to uh, Roman Catholicism, they're also reacting to kind of magisterial reformation, um, saying that there is still too much of a hierarchy, too much control over the local assembly. So the Baptist tradition develops out of kind of the core element that everything centers around is um, the idea of soul competence is like s-o-u-l soul competence that each person who is a believer is endowed with the holy spirit and therefore able to read scriptures and understand god's will um so when a group of believers come together they are able together to discern god's will for their local body for their community and they don't need a bishop or a magisterium to kind of dictate what happens in their community um so so the goal of the baptist movement is to establish individual autonomy and local church autonomy um and it could be accused of kind of uh, buying into the zeitgeist, kind of the whole American Revolution is all about, you know, like winning our independence, we can govern ourselves. I'm sure there's an element of that going on. But there also is a sincere attempt to read the New Testament and see what is happening in the churches in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. How are they governed? And let's do our best to look like that. I think there's an openness to development, even in early stages of Baptist life. But seeing the rest of the church fractured and, in their eyes, departing from the goals of the church, departing from the mission of the church, in their eyes, they believed that they needed to take a huge step back and see what the New Testament church did and start from there and start from scratch. Mm-hmm. Um and and I think that's not a bad thing. Yeah, it's not really debated um, that, like, Baptists were, like, restorationists in the strict sense of the word. We yeah. are restoring the New Testament. Like, that's something that Baptists today think, but it's also something that Baptists historically have always thought. Right back to the Anabaptists. Um, in fact, uh, a book on this... Uh, by my professor at Baylor, Doug Weaver, is just called In Search of the New Testament Church, because that's what the Baptists were trying to do, is just, what does the New Testament say? Okay, let's take this blueprint and let's put it down and build it. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I think you're right. Like, in our readings for that seminar, we went through Baptist author after Baptist author after Baptist author, who was arguing that, like, we're the truest Americans, because we have the truest democratic um, model. Yeah. So there is the the joint elements of um, trying to be New Testament, but reading the New Testament through uh, modern Western democratic eyes, um, which something that Tyler pointed out earlier, I thought was interesting is that so when um, Baptist patristic scholars, the few of them read the New Testament and the patristic era, uh, they do find a lot of a lot more um, 
validation of Baptist ecclesiology than they expected to find. Um, but when Catholic or Orthodox or uh, mainland Protestant researchers read, they also find what they expect to find. And so none of us are really free from this trap. But there are, by talking about it, I think that we can come to some ac- some at least provisional conclusions about the nature of early church ecclesiology. Yeah. Let's search for the New Testament church. What can we definitively say about the New Testament church? And I, I'll just say, so I identify as a Baptist. I think among major denominations, I think they're among the closest to kind of a New Testament-ish. Um, again, I'm okay with development. I, I don't have a problem if, if a church structure looks different from the New Testament, because like we said, the New Testament is amorphous in its description of these things. But there are specific things that the New Testament talks about the new, that, that the church did when they came together. And I think an important note is when the Bible talks about church, I think, to my knowledge, every single time it's talking about a local group, like not a city necessarily, but a group of people that come together. Like the church in Corinth is probably like a church, a group of people. Um, I could be wrong about that. Or maybe like a group of house churches, but yeah, often, at least often, the reference is to specific people. Yeah. I would also add that like there's maybe a bit of a difference between Tyler and I on this is like, I think for Paul, the mystical body of Christ, like the church with what we would write with a large C, um, I think that is an element of his thinking, like the, the, the church as a worldwide phenomenon. Yeah. As like the mystical, like the church at Corinth might be the finger, but all together come together in the body of Christ, of which Christ is the head. Yeah. Yeah, we would disagree there, which is fine. Um, Okay, so what did they do when they came together? I don't see... um, I guess I should say, whenever the Bible... And the New Testament speaks of the assembly of believers. It's always the language of one another. Like, do these things for one another. Each one, when you come together, one brings a teaching. One brings a psalm. One brings a song. One brings this or that, a prophecy. And to my reading of it, it seems that each person is expected to have something to offer. Each person is welcome to offer these things. There isn't a dude who stands up and, and preaches at you for an, for an hour. Um, it seems to be very much lay-oriented and lay-driven. As much as I hate this word, organic, it's kind of a... I wouldn't say chaos, because I don't... I don't that seems too polemical against it. But, it. but it's a very open-ended, we all bring our gifts for one another. The way I read pastors overseers, whatever you want to call them. I'm actually much more low church than Baptists in this regard, because I don't, I believe even Baptists have way overemphasized 
what a pastor, elder, bishop is and does. We only have, we have very few discussions of what the elders do in the church, and those discussions are always kind of, you're there to help people do what they're already doing. Like, the elder should be able to preach, but that's not because they're the person who preaches. It's because they need to teach other people how to preach. Um, it's always a support role, mostly in the background, helping people do, helping people learn how to live as a Christian in the assembly. Uh, elders seem to be people who are risen up from within an already existing group, who are recognized as wise and experienced and loyal to the faith. And they seem to be like, you know, whenever you go into a church, you kind of, if you're there for any amount of time, you know who the elders are when you walk in. I'm not talking about pastors. I'm talking about, uh, you know, this was a common theme growing up. Like, there's always an old lady in the church that you go to to ask for prayer. You know, the, that terrible phrase, prayer warrior. Like, Everyone knows you go to Miss Betty to ask for prayer because she is an intercessor. She this is her gift and her and her and her love is to go to God on behalf of people in the church. And you kind of always know when you're in a church for a while, you know who to go to. That's what I would say the New Testament calls an elder. Um, are these people who are naturally occurring leaders? So I think Baptists overemphasize preaching. I think they underemphasize the Eucharist, um, especially as a meal where we all get together and share a meal together. So I'm much more low church in that sense. But I think Baptists, more than other denominations, are able to incorporate these things that the New Testament tells us to do, this one-anothering. So that's my kind of reading the New Testament as a Baptist. So, yeah, I'll just uh, maybe like talk like talk about my thoughts on these these basically the same passages. Maybe we can just keep doing it like that. Um, yeah, the 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 bit about elders, deacons, and bishops in the pastorals is the most important set of passages here. It's not the only passage um, set of passages, but they are the most important, and so. We're asking, like, what does First Timothy uh, and Titus mostly mean when they say uh, overseer, presbyter, bishop, and deacon? Um, so if Tyler thinks that these are, like, basically organically growing up things, I, I, would, I don't agree with that because of sort of the way that... Um, whatever this office means is talked about does seem to make it an official office. Um, and so without weighing into the differences between Clement's understanding of this and Ignatius's understanding of this in first Timothy and Titus, there does seem to be um, an institutional recognition of degrees of hierarchy um, not necessarily ontological hierarchy, but hierarchy and function and to perform the tasks of the church. And so that there are, what we might call real offices and that Tyler and I were talking about this beforehand. Like funk, it doesn't seem to me to 
uh, go with the grain of the pastorals to think about these as uh, informal recognitions um, instead of like strictly offices. And um, just because there are qualifications, um, there are um, like responsibilities given to these specific people. And um, I think an often overlooked passage is first or is Titus 1.5, uh, where Paul or the author says to Titus, quote, this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And then he gives a list of qualifications for an elder. And I don't see how, like, we could understand that as, like, an organic growth thing because Titus is told to go around to churches and as the one in authority, um, we might picture Titus as the bishop here appointing elders or presbyters, as the one in authority giving the institutional laying on of hands to... Um, Maybe they were already organic leaders, but now they have the church's explicit validation um, and then therefore are required to not only be good Christians, um, but are held to that even more strictly by the qualifications for the elder um, or the deacon. And interestingly here, um, this is a bit of a side note, but I think it is relevant to the conversation. Uh, someone pointed out in a sermon, I think even, uh, that the 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 responsibilities and requirements for a deacon and an elder are pretty much exactly the same with the one exception that a deacon is not supposed, uh, is not able to teach is, is not one of the requirements for a deacon, but it is for an elder. Um, and so I think that th this would comport relatively well with the growth of the tradition in which the elder who would become the priest and the bishop is like a specific guide to the teaching of the church that doesn't mean lay people can never teach that doesn't mean um that they always have to sermon right like they don't have to talk for 20 minutes um or 45 minutes as some churches do today um it doesn't have to be it isn't the form of the teaching that's important but that the priests and the bishops are the guides to the teachings and teaching a catechesis of the church yeah so I guess now we can do kind of a response to each other. And we just, if you don't listen to this podcast much, you may not know, we, like, our disagreements are super cordial. We're super best friends. So we're going to push back on each other and probably make fun of each other, but that's okay because we're friends. Um, so I, I would I would push back on... Um, so Titus appointing, I see that, and I that is something that I need to, like, that, that my view has to reckon with. But I think just as important is the fact that when Paul uh, makes his first journey around uh, the Mediterranean Greek churches, it's like three years before he goes back around and sets up bishops in those uh, churches, or priests in those churches. Right. And I think that's because of this organic nature of it. Because he goes to these churches, uh, the people convert, and then there is a time whenever their elders will kind of naturally develop from within. And then Paul goes back around and uh, and kind of approves those, those people. Um, and Paul has a different... And I would actually agree that Paul 
for no other reason than that he is an apostle has a different set of authority like i don't mm-hmm. i don't think anyone uh after the apostles have that kind of authority mm-hmm. um because they were specifically witnesses to the resurrected christ so that's a different thing um so there's there's that aspect of it as far as the qualifications go i'd say these qualifications are no different than what a normal christian should do aside from able to teach and the reason i think that elders are given the qualifications to be able to teach is because their role within the group is to help people learn how to teach Mm -hmm. Um, not everyone has to teach but if you're role within the assembly is to help others learn how to do that you've got to be able to do it yourself um and maybe i i don't think i made this clear i think we're thinking the same thing like able to teach here means catechized with orthodox doctrine able to teach just means being orthodox in belief like it's trying to inculcate orthodoxy and not necessarily trying to turn people into effective communicators yeah that's a different yeah i i it was okay. on a different wavelength. I did not read that as having okay. to be orthodox. Um, I thought of that more as skill. Okay, nice. That's yeah. interesting. So what makes you think of it in terms of orthodoxy? Why should a deacon not have the qualification of being like inculcated and, hmm. a, and an elder should? That's interesting. I hadn't thought it in those terms. Maybe able to inculcate orthodoxy in others regardless of how that is done would be more accurate which i guess would be more of a skill thing yeah so it's like i can't maybe this is just my own limited uh perspective on it i can't really imagine them setting up like able to teach meaning learning the rhetorical skills of a sermon right like or of a speech like speeches existed and they had rhetorical skills. I don't, I can't see the author of first Timothy can't see Paul or whatever, like thinking there, you need to learn to read Cicero and Aristotle on rhetoric because that's not really what the early Christians valued. They valued Christ crucified and not rhetorical strategy. And so like for Paul, it seems like, the the being able to teach is understanding the Christian doctrine accurately and then being able to communicate it. Sort of like Apollos can be a good uh, speaker, but he is able to teach when Prisca and Aquila um, give him more accurate hmm. theology. Hmm. Yeah. That's a fun kind of blurry line that that's hard yeah. to... But it, it, you're, I think you're right that it does have some level of skill to it because the deacons of course should i hadn't thought of it in those that's good though Hmm. well at any rate so again this is not normal for baptists my my views on pastors isn't normal for baptists because they very much value it in a way that i don't think we should um but like i all the things that we in the within the development of the office of 
pastor, elder, bishop, priest. The things that we set them aside to do are the things that the whole church is told to do for one another. So I don't like, it seems to me that if we're going to have this office, they're just working themselves out of a job. Because one thing that is explicit in scripture is that the elders are to, um, are to help other people do these things. Like bringing a teaching or a song or a psalm or a scripture passage or whatever. So at least within the gathering itself, the things that we have set priests aside to do I, like, why do we have to set someone aside to do the thing that everyone else is already told to do anyway? Yeah, um, I do think that there's some difference there. Um, so that, like, primarily when Paul says that uh, the clergy is there to prepare the saints for the work of ministry, I would think of ministry more in terms of, like, service to the world and, like, what we imagine, like, lay people doing in their jobs and whatever. Um, but that, like even if that doesn't necessarily get around to this problem, like I'm not sure that the problem is really a problem because there's all sorts of people, like there's all sorts of positions in society in which people are trying to work themselves out of jobs. Um, like if a firefighter does his job really well, then there are no fires. Therefore we don't need firefighters. If, uh, if the idyllic version of police and not the police in America uh, are doing their job, then everybody's safe. And we don't need police. Uh, that's I believe not, that anyway. Yeah, so. that's not how police really work, <laughs> but that's the idea of them. Uh, that's how they are sold to us. And so, like, there's all sorts of jobs that in the perfect world of the resurrection will not be necessary, but that are necessary now due to imperfection. And I think that, like, even if a priest or a deacon is someone who's just... So, called to do the Christian things and help other people do the Christian things. It is necessary and because people don't live fully Christian, they do need guidance and yeah. how to do that and motivation to do that. And so the question here is like, I, I think the, 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 when it gets to the real difference is like, is a, are the sacraments of the church, um, the office of the are the responsibility of the the priest or the people that that's a difference yeah but laying aside that question i don't know that i don't know that uh the necessity for them to try to work themselves out of a job um really doesn't really gets to the problem because of um this in inborn sinfulness of human nature even of the priests themselves i see that but but where I think that breaks down is the fact that the thing that the priests are supposed to be teaching people to do is the things that only the priests do in our churches now, like teach and preach, um, at least as far as the actual assembly, like the gathering itself goes. Within the gathering, the, the, the only specifics we have on church order in scripture is each person is bringing these things. And if we have set aside one person or a couple people to do these things, then we are, I think, explicitly uh, disobeying, was it Hebrews or James, which says, don't neglect the assembly of believers. Yeah, it's Hebrews. Like, uh, whenever we only let one person do all of these things, I think that is a neglect of the assembly. 
So I think yeah. in a lot of cases, not every, and there are there are other aspects of this, which we'll get to in a minute, but I think our major gatherings of the church, whenever we all come together weekly, often is a neglect yeah. because no one is being trained to, to teach because only one person does it every week. So uh, maybe a couple things on that. Um, on the one hand, like I think that pe- that they are training people to teach in Sunday schools, right? Like yeah, training that's like the, Sunday that's school where, leaders. Yeah, I was hoping we'd get there next, but go for it. Um, yeah, I'll pivot from that. Say the other thing that we can get back yeah, to. This maybe. Yeah. Um, I don't necessarily think that like so. Paul in First Corinthians fourteen does say like each of you comes with a teaching or a song or a prophecy. Let all things be done for the good. If one person is prophesying and then someone else has a prophecy, let the first person sit down because God is God of order, not of disorder or whatever. And that doesn't necessarily negate, like, Paul for sure is expecting each Christian to bring something for the common good. That doesn't uh, necessarily mean that there is not also, like, a specific catechesis um, process where the priest does some teaching and he's always expected to teach whereas the people bring uh, their individual teachings it's we don't necessarily have specific evidence of that but we also don't have evidence that the people are the only ones bringing this teaching especially in light of the fact that first timothy says the uh, priest should be able to teach yeah and so like there does seem to be some specifically teaching responsibility that the elder has and this is presumably happening during the service um, even though Paul has a much more lay, has in mind much more lay involvement than our churches do now. Yeah. And I think if that's, I think if that's uh, our reading of the New Testament, then we should try to reform the models we have now to do, yeah. um, have more lay involvement, which maybe back to Sunday schools. Yeah. No, I, I, so again, the question that we're asking right now is what does the New Testament church look like? And then is what we have currently justified? I think what we have currently can be relatively justified because of Sunday schools, small groups, home groups, whatever. And I think those should actually be the central focus of the church. Um, because another thing that, I, that, to my eyes, from my perspective, seems pretty clear is that um, these are house churches, which by necessity, it was smaller groups. This was when the church was born. Um, but it seems, it doesn't seem possible to to do the kind of one anothering mentioned in scripture with mega churches. And by mega, I think like a couple hundred people is whenever we get <laughs> into the realm of not being able to do this stuff on the, on the level that we, that we see happening in scripture. Um, is it justified or not? I mean, I'm not super hardcore on one or the other. Um, but I think with our current model and with my understanding of what happens in the assembly, our small groups need to be more important than the than the preaching part of the service. And I think within those small groups, the Eucharist needs to be central. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that would allow us to leave the structures that we have for the most part, but it would also recover things that I think are non-negotiable from Scripture. 
Um, because I think that the system we have, since it's so much focused on that big church, as we called it when we were kids, since it's so much focused on that, I think we as members lose our understanding of our responsibility to learn how to do these things, to learn how to bring a psalm or a teaching or a song. Um, so I think that if we make these small groups kind of the core of what we do, and within that make the Eucharist the core of what those groups do, I think that we are closer to the New Testament church, and we have that wiggle room for development for practical reasons. Yeah, um, I think a lot of that assumes like a broadly Baptist understanding of like how like just how Baptist churches today function. Mm -hmm. And being a longtime Baptist, I like understand that. I think from my perspective now, I would I would want to add as a non-negotiable um, the development of a hierarchy and an authority structure, because as much as everyone bring a song and a teaching or even more so because this is like a command, not a, a description of what's happening. We need to have um, a hierarchy of people who are um, set to govern and direct the structure of the local church. And then the church as it relates to other local churches, um, because we have the offices of the elder bishop, we have uh, going around and appointing uh, priests in every town and then uh, if that's necessary because it's New Testament. Um, no, you say necessary and command. Just to be clear, you're... So Paul telling... And this isn't like an accusation yeah. or anything. I'm trying to get clear. No, I understand. Asking, or, or Paul telling Titus to go and appoint bishops or priests in each, each church. You would see that as a command that all churches need to have a priest appointed. Yes. Okay. So because um, the the idea here is that like we use the uh, the the authority structure to implement local church uh, functionings, we use uh, so Titus being the large authority because he's given it from Paul um, to set up local churches or um, designate the leaders in the churches. The command there to Titus to designate those leaders, I think, should apply to the church more generally to choose and retain leadership in a similar way. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. If lay involvement is a necessity, I think also structure and hierarchy is a necessity. So in the same passages the, um, is that we've been citing a lot, 1 Corinthians 14, um, Paul talks about um like he gives a, a theological principle in which the diversity of the lay involvement happens and that's uh let everything happen in good order uh, for god is not a god of disorder but of peace and so as long as we have a structure in which everything is done orderly and peacefully and not chaotically and as long as we have a structure in which there are levels of authority through which processes and uh teachings and songs and whatnot can uh, be validated as long as there's both lay involvement and order and hierarchy i think whatever we have is legitimate and i i as we were talking i was thinking about my own church and i do think we actually do meet all the qualifications hmm. um within a within a, uh, an episcopal structure hmm. um, because we have 
lay people singing songs that they bring to the church during the Eucharist. Yeah. Uh, and we have, um, we have a lot of order. It's yeah. insanely ordered. Yeah. Um, and we do have, uh, extreme lay involvement in very small groups in our, uh, daily office morning prayer. Yeah. And then lay people can lead that as well. Yeah. What we don't have is prophecy, but nobody really has prophecy. I guess the Pentecostals have prophecy, but I don't love the way they do it. So I'm just going to my eyes. They do it for us. Yeah. Kind of like monks live the ascetic <laughs> life that we're all supposed to on our behalf. Yeah. 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 I think, again, like I've been trying to reiterate because I'm not, I'm not as hardcore. I used to be more hardcore on this, but I'm not as hardcore now as I, as I used to be on like whether churches should have pastors in the modern sense like i used to think get rid of it all even Mm -hmm. like all of it is was garbage to me now i I relaxed on it i'm still i still think that there we need to strip a lot of it Mm -hmm. and and kind of like a good baptist i think that we need to revise and, and restructure in light of the new testament I think that's probably periodically a good thing to do Yeah, for the church to, a local church, always, to read. Or the mystical body. The yeah. Church, oh, working whatever. together. To, yeah. I do have some thoughts on that extra. Yeah. Other okay. than. Well, anyway, I, I mean, I think it's good for us to constantly look back and say, like, what does the New Testament church look like? And what have we added to it? And are those additions... Um, enhancing or hindering the kingdom of god in the world mm-hmm. um are they making it are our is our order and structure making it so that all of our members are being taught how to live as christians in the world and how to be a part of the assembly or is it making it harder for them to be a part of the assembly and if it's making it harder then we've got to change mm-hmm. which is why i think baptists at their best are, are, are doing well. Mm -hmm. And I also think going back to, we've been talking a lot about the pastor's job, the priest's job, but even in terms of, uh, network between the churches, um, I think Baptists have a, I mean, it's, it gets a lot of flack and rightfully slow so often, but I think it's structure of, uh, cooperation like a voluntary association voluntary association that's yeah that's like the technical words we like to use i I think that's right and i think we can even see elements of that in early very early church Mm -hmm. like post new testament stuff where even in nicaea you have like hey if we excommunicate someone in alexandria y'all over in jerusalem don't accept them mm-hmm. because they are under discipline from us. Which and Baptists we, used to do, right? Baptists the, used the to letters do letters of recommendation. Yeah, letter of recommendation. If a person wanted to move from one church to another church, the the church where they are currently a member would write a letter to the new church where the person was was asking to join. And they would say, you know, yes, this person was a great member. There are orthodox consistent members you should accept them into your membership and that other church would do that because of this church recommending it am i right Um, to 
think that the alternative to that was getting either baptized or rebaptized. So they would do, um, if you're coming from, an, and I don't like this, if you're coming from another denomination, often Baptists would baptize you into the Baptist mm-hmm. tradition. The true baptism. And, yeah. And that's the whole reason it started, Anabaptist rebaptizers. Yeah. But but they would even do this with people who accept, like, with denominations that would le- would do, like, uh, believer's baptism. Oh, really? So, like, you're only baptized if you profess faith as an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, and Baptist often, if you're moving from, you know, Methodist to Baptist, Presbyterian to Baptist, Pentecostal, you had to be baptized into the Baptist faith. And I think that's mm. bad. Like, I think I, that's explicitly bad. I get the rebaptizing infants, but yeah. like they would even rebaptize like, I don't know, uh, uh, an Assemblies of God person. Yeah. yeah. Oh. If you're not Baptist, you're baptized into Baptist. The true church. Yeah. The one with the trail of blood going all the way back to Jesus. All the way back to John the Baptist. Yeah. yeah. Before Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's bad. Um, but uh, but there are, you know, these hierarchies. I, I'm not sold on hierarchy. This is another point that I had written down mm-hmm. is to say Baptists are the communists of the church, global church. On that. So the I said, uh, if we have to ask if the hierarchy is justified, mm-hmm. thinking of a Noam Chomsky passage where he says, uh, we need to examine hierarchies and demolish them if they can't justify themselves for the common good. Yeah. And that's uh, why I think like even like we can talk about the future of communism and what happens after that. I don't know that moving from a state Marxism to a stateless Marxism is all that necessary. Because when we can say, you know, China is communist, and that does have meaning. And so that, like, you can be a state Marxist. So how are you, where is this in the church conversation? How are you? Uh, sort of that uh, hierarchies themselves can be justifying, self-justifying. Even if we are people who rightly want to question hierarchies because they're mostly used for oppression. Okay, so here's where I think... Um, also, I just had that thought and wanted to run it by you to yeah. see what you thought. I don't know. I have to think about it. Yeah, that's fine. So the point of Baptist polity is that it's democratically run, which mm-hmm. I... It's not just, you know, American revolutionary ideals. I do think we see this in the New Testament. I yeah. actually believe yeah. that we see democracy within the assembly. We can talk about that another time because we're we're going pretty long now. But uh, I wanted to talk about communism. (laughs) Um, So the problem I see with most other denominations and traditions that I think Baptists do fall into this at times, but I think has the most potential of, you know, being able to avert it is like sacerdotalism, like um priests being set apart for these tasks to the exclusion of the laity and i see that as um sort of appropriating what is rightfully ours and in this case unlike the rest of society it is god-given right um i think that it is our god-given right as people who have been filled with the spirit and you know, reborn into this thing called the church, 
um, to, uh, you know, administer the sacraments or, or baptize another person. Um, and even, you know, we've already been talking about ways in which even hierarchical churches can invite the laity into the teaching, you know, through Sunday school or the singing through inviting them to, uh, to sing, you know, a special during the service. But I think that, uh, that hierarchical structures kind of remove the autonomy of the individuals. And I do think that is something that's, uh, right and biblical and given by God. And a hierarchical structure is more apt to hinder that than, than to give that freedom. And I think Baptist structure has more potential to, to do that better. Mm -hmm. I do think it's worth pointing out that like those two specific things, which under ordinary circumstances, lay people in hierarchical churches shouldn't do baptism in the Eucharist though. Uh, any, even an unbeliever can baptize if they use the right form. Um, the sacrament is a bit more, a bit more preserved to priests, but there are uh, lay Eucharistic ministers that work in conjunction with priests and whatnot. Uh, but even those things that are more set aside, um, just thinking about those, those aren't things that are given specific, like to all, uh, aren't explicitly at least given to all lay people as their inheritance in the church because it's the apostles who were told to go uh, teach and baptize all nations. Um, See, and... I would disagree there. Well, I mean, I guess, what, what do you mean by apostle? Uh, the 12 or people who saw the risen Christ? Yes. I mean, he's specifically teaching, to, talking to the twelve, by implication that uh, applies to the broader group of apostles, however we define it. And then I do think that by implication, uh, there is a, a step down, but some real inheritance to the bishops. Hmm. So that, like, I think a, a good example of sort of the difference between the the bishop's inheritance versus the people's is in Acts 15. It's not the entire church that gets together to democratically elect, uh, like the church's stance on the Mosaic law. It's the bishops who get together and, uh, or the apostles, um, and the, the authorities in the church who get together and decide, uh, what they're going to do about the Mosaic law. Yeah. And so, but maybe getting back to the original point, I do think that it's true that lay involvement is important uh, in churches because of what Paul says. But baptism and the Eucharist, the two key things that uh, later church tradition will reserve to the clergy is not actually given to the people uh, explicitly. So, so you great, can argue so by implication. Would you say that the Great Commission is only for apostles? Uh, I would say that the Great Commission strictly is only for the church, uh, so it's given to the, specifically to the apostles and they're going to go around, uh, preaching, teaching, baptizing. Um, and then the implication is that the church will grow where the apostles, uh, do that work. And so that by implication, the entire church structure and hierarchy gets the great commission, but it's not necessarily the case that every single person, um, is told to or is under the command of the great commission even though the whole church at large is and uh, because not i think it's just um 
just self-evidently true that not every person is called to go out into all nations and teach and baptize. I don't think anyone would agree with that. Um, and so what even, um, even people who read that as being applicable to lay people don't uh, believe that literally every person is supposed to go to all nations. They say that the church, their basic understanding, if you drill them, is that the whole church does the Great Commission and some people are selected out. Mm. And I would say that it's the, uh, the church hierarchy through the bishops yeah who on the one hand jesus says uh, whoever like breathes on them gives them the holy spirit whoever sins you retain and forgive that's an element of the clergy um being given to the priest through the bishops through christ um on the other hand you've got the expansion of the church yeah i get where you're coming from and it makes sense um i'd obviously disagree yeah. on, uh, with yeah. like kind of I, I think that's an imposition of hierarchy that is not called for yeah. and 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 installing that in the church i think is a is a disservice um to the goal of the church like i think it's hindering to to the goal of the church mm-hmm. not to the point that i would say like you know anglicans are in sin because they have this polity like i just think there are better and worse ways for the church to be the church mm-hmm. in this world. And Baptists have some really crappy ways of doing it. And I think need need to work on it. I think one of the biggest things we need to work on is the the importance of the Eucharist and incorporating our our heritage reading the same you know the the fathers and mothers of the church mm. and and even the church calendar i think is is one of those things that isn't like commanded but is but is clearly beneficial to the work of the church so maybe tell me if you think this is right a key difference here is how like to theologically read the things said to um and about the apostles in the gospels and acts so like when i read the apostles like this is given to the apostles, like um, the power of binding and loosing and uh, the Matthew 15 bit about excommunication is mm-hmm. given to the apostles and therefore the hierarchy. The bit about Jesus saying, you don't, you can't understand everything now, but the Holy Spirit will come and lead you into all truth. I read that as the apostles and therefore the hierarchy of the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it comes to the Great Commission, the apostles, therefore the church broadly. When it comes to... Uh, what uh the power of forgiving sins and remitting sins that he gets in luke or john one of the two reason gives the holy spirit whoever sins you retain i retain yeah i don't think that's to each individual person i think that's to the church hierarchy yeah would you read the opposite yeah yeah i would say because it's to the apostles it's to every individual because i think the only distinction that the apostles have from a normal person is that by proximity to the risen Christ, they can tell us what Christians have to believe. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the only difference I see between apostles and the rest of us. Um, and, no, and like, the, the, apostle, the apostles' disciples, so Polycarp mm-hmm. um, was a disciple of St. John. I don't think Polycarp has what John had. Mm-hmm. I think that by proximity to John, he's more likely to know 
what Jesus would have wanted the church to do. And so we should take, we should take John more seriously than Polycarp Mm -hmm. and Polycarp more serious than Irenaeus because of their proximity to the risen Christ, historically speaking. Right. But the only difference is like, if an apostle says that it's true, if a disciple of an apostle says it, it's probably true. But there's a there's a distinction in authority. Right. No, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So I have lots of thoughts that I that I wish we could keep going, but we're already at an hour and twenty minutes. Um I wish we could get into more. Maybe someday we'll pick this up again. Yeah, maybe we could have a so, second episode to talk more. Yeah. I feel like we covered quite a bit. We did. Specifically, I wanna I wanna I wanna comment on something that you said, because I think it's important. The Acts, the Jerusalem Council and mm. Acts. I would disagree with you that it was the okay. apostles. I would say uh, it was actually the whole Jerusalem church and the apostles were there. And that even James, who was their bishop, that's right, mm-hmm. um, he got permission from the church to make his vote. Because what James says is, James and someone else with him, I want to say, uh, said, um, we and our church have like we agree to such and such Hmm. i can't remember the exact wording of the verse but i remember looking at this a long time ago and reading it specifically that way that's interesting so what i'm seeing that's interesting i hadn't heard that sort of take on it okay yeah interesting uh verse 22 then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to antioch with paul and barnabas they chose uh, these people who were leaders among the believers and the letter begins, the apostles and elders, your brothers to the Gentile believers. Yeah, so I, so my reading of that, which again, this is fuzzy. It's like, it's not really clear what the hierarchy looks like. Um, but it seems to me that, that the whole church played a big role in this. It wasn't just elders and apostles. It was also James with the backing of his church. That's interesting. I mean, maybe this is just an element of you see things that you believe because yeah. I mean, I read it and think like, I don't see how that's, I don't, I can't see that, but yeah, I mean, maybe I just, what seems so obvious to me could just yeah. be yeah. that a few years ago I started thinking that, oh, maybe an Episcopal structure is more correct. Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess that will conclude our meandery fun little discussion on church polity and church history um obviously these are only two perspectives from people who well i diverge pretty significantly on some issues from my tradition gerhard is relatively new to his tradition so people within each of ours are going to disagree with us yeah and uh and those of you who are from other traditions you know tell us what you think if I remember right, this uh, episode came out of a discussion that Tyler and I had on Twitter, and then I think someone suggested that we should do an episode on it. Yeah. Or one of us suggested it. Um, but if you have any thoughts about it, any questions, any yeah. suggestions, hit us yeah, up. Yeah, if you want us to kind of get into a more specific thing around this or around anything else, uh, shoot us a message or tweet or whatever. At and... Podcastica Patristica, or at Gerhard Steuben, or... At Tyler Stanley. And uh, check out the Reformation podcast. It's the podcast Gerhard does with Jake Robbie. 
they talk about all things reformation yeah we just recorded an episode and i think i'll be editing it tomorrow uh on this episode we talked about uh the like catholic soteriology um from the middle ages through the cusp of the reformation so understanding what was taught about salvation before you get to luther and his well-known theology of salvation Hmm. that was also a question that someone uh suggested to us on twitter like hey can you do an episode about yeah this and that'll we did be it. super interesting yeah i'm excited to it was a to good that. conversation we also have the augustinian.com is where we write some blogs uh i just put out one on whether we should withhold the eucharist from ice agents so getting back to a discussion we had on this podcast about church discipline and excommunication and um kind of what that should look like in the current day Lots of theology takes, lots of political uh, morality yeah. takes. Yeah. As always, farewell, children of love and peace. May the Lord of glory and all grace be with your spirit. Amen. <laughs>